Hello and welcome to the Home Cinema Podcast for me. I'm Phil Hinton and joining me this evening is Steve Withers. Good evening, Steve. Evening, Phil. Evening, Ed. And also joining us is Ed. Sally. Yeah. <laughs> evening, Phil, and evening, Steve. So let's kick off. 4K for 4K. We've uh, we've been talking about 4K TVs for, well, the entire year so far. We've only seen a handful come to market. Uh, but big announcement today from Sony that the UK will get two 4K screens, a 55-inch and a 65-inch. It will be designated the X9 model number, and uh, it's going to cost 4K for the 55-inch and 6K for the 65-inch. Uh, so, Steve, thoughts on that one? Yeah, it's massive news, Phil, because um, you know we've been talking about, as you say, we've been talking about 4K for quite some time now. We have seen a couple of 4K products. Uh, we reviewed a 4K projector that was seventeen thousand pounds. We reviewed a 84-inch 4K TV that was twenty-three thousand pounds. So pretty toppy on the price point. Uh, the announcement of a 4K TV for 4K um, is spectacular because I mean four thousand pounds. We're talking about perhaps still the high end of the market, but certainly approaching mass market acceptance. I mean, when you compare that to something we're going to be talking about a bit later on, which is the Panasonic ZT65, that's also £4,000, and that's for a 60-inch uh, 1080p plasma. So if you can pick up a 55-inch 4K LED LCD TV for £4,000, that's starting to look very attractive to the to the enthusiast. And, um, you know, that's the kind of thing that, that can really generate some real acceptance and penetration into, into the marketplace of 4K. And and so, you know, I know I've been saying this and so have you for some time now, uh, that 4K is not only on the way, but already here and going to be hitting, hitting the market a lot faster than people think. This is a good indication. We're talking about two TVs in sensible screen sizes at very attractive prices hitting the market in the summer. I have to say it, it is a massive psychological uh, price point barrier. Uh, I have a, if you like, a sort of a sticking point in my own mind where anything more than five thousand pounds for a single piece of equipment is is just you know it, it it takes it into into a level where I it would have to do something truly extraordinary for me to to consider it. Um, and and breach getting below that point this quickly um, is yes. I mean it it's it gets to the stage where uh, you know with with good luck and a following wind I, I wouldn't rule out all of a sudden now considering something like that to replace my decidedly venerable set um, in the not-too-distant future. And obviously, the other, you know, it remains to be seen. But if we're talking about list prices, there's always the possibility of a little bit of uh, potential erosion um, once it actually hits the high street. So, yeah, I mean, it, it's big news. It, all of a sudden, 4K was something that I was going to sort of, you know, start looking at in a long time. Um, and th this does unarguably move it move it forward quite a considerable distance interestingly obviously sony have announced uh, today um and I, I can expect lg to announce something in the near future too in terms of 4k tvs at, at a more affordable price point but i had a meeting yesterday with finlux who told me that they expect to have a 4k tv in the marketplace within the next year so you know if we're talking about finlux in all due respect to a mid-market brand that suggests to me within a year we're going to be hitting price points that are going to be acceptable to the mass market for 4K televisions, which is uh, quite exciting, I think, really. Well, really, it's something that the industry, it has to happen for the industry. If you look at all the JFK data that, that we get to see now and again, and you look at uh, some of the other data that we get to see behind closed doors and so on regarding sales of TVs, uh, 
the UK has reached saturation point, even for second and third screens um, when it comes to flat panel TVs. Uh, I was quite amazed with some of the data that I saw from one manufacturer, uh, which said that you know saturation point ninety percent have at least two flat panel TVs in in their house. Um, so when you're looking at that kind of data, what are they going to sell people? Um, you know, a lot of people are buying into flat panel screens. Uh, we've had the digital switchover that's now passed and people that needed to upgrade their TVs, they've upgraded their TVs. Um, so what else has the industry got to sell us? Um, it has to be higher resolution because 3D was a, such a huge failure. Yeah, that's true. I, I mean, they've had a couple of pick-me-ups recently. Last year, obviously, with the digital switchover and then the Olympics, that, that helped boost TV sales. There is a growing trend towards larger screen sizes as well. I mean, traditionally, 32 inches would be considered a big TV. Uh, now, I guess 42 is probably about the norm. And uh, you're seeing larger screen sizes, 50, 55, 65 inches becoming quite common. So what's happening is people are buying a larger TV for their lounge and then moving the smaller TV into the bedroom or, or a kitchen you know, or another room for a second or even third television. So, yes, the market is saturated, but people's habits are changing to a degree. And as you say, Phil, unfortunately, the 3D wasn't the success that they'd hoped for. So the, they definitely, the manufacturers definitely need something to sell us, <laughs> something to convince us to buy yet another TV, um, given that most TVs do have a relatively long life cycle. I mean, I guess, I mean, AV forums, sort of enthusiasts tend to review TVs on a regular basis, even yearly, picking up the new model each year in the way that some guys, you know, will, will buy a new car every year. But the majority of people hold, you know, use the same TV for f five years, um, maybe longer. So, uh, yeah, with the failure of 3D in, in, as a mass market uh, product and um, with OLED still, you know, AWOL, um, 4K is the obvious thing to do. I mean, they have been trying to push smart TV, of course, as well as, as being a reason to buy a new TV. Um, and there are elements of that, that, that as we've discussed on, on, on the last movies podcast, there are elements of smart TV and, and internet streaming that, that, that are very attractive in terms of, you know, catch-up TV or, or services like Netflix, which you know, can lend themselves immediately to you being used with television because obviously it's about watching content. But I think the rest of the platforms that they're pushing have yet to really get that kind of impact or penetration into the mass marketplace. People aren't going to be using their TVs to, you know, surf the web or um, order pizza or this sort of stuff. I mean, you can do it, but it's just a lot easier and quicker to do it off a tablet or a, or a mobile phone or even a laptop. So, yeah, 4K definitely is being touted as the, the big saviour over the next uh, year or two. Uh, the big problem, of course, is for the manufacturers of TVs is where they're going to get the content from. Well, I don't think that is a big issue. I think the big issue is the Chinese and undercutting. You know, it's going to be down to the Korean and Japanese manufacturers to try and get their products out there as quickly as possible because uh, we saw it at CES. Um, the Chinese can do exactly the same as these big brands can do, and they can do it a hell of a lot cheaper. Yeah, that will be interesting to see what impact the Chinese do have. I mean, I mean, traditionally, it, I mean, if you go back a few years, it was the Japanese who were the, sort of the premier manufacturers. Then the Koreans came into the market, and now the Koreans dominate Samsung and LG. Is that going to happen now? to the Koreans with the Chinese coming into the market. Uh, it'll be interesting to see over the next year or two just how, how much impact the Chinese manufacturers actually have with their own brands in, in marketplaces where they're I mean, obviously in China that they sell loads, but clearly they're not familiar brands in, in Western Europe, for example. So it'll be interesting to see how much penetration they actually get or whether people will be uh, reserved at first because they're not familiar with the name. I mean, let's not you know, let's remember that only a few years ago, LG, Lucky Gold Star, was considered a you know, cheapo brand 
uh, and now LG have just just overtaken. In fact, Samsung as the largest manufacturer of flat panels in the world. So um, it can be done. Uh, it's a question of just, I suppose how long it takes uh, and how much marketing and money they're prepared to spend in order to penetrate the um, Western and US markets. Okay, so that that was the big news at the time of uh, recording this podcast, 4K for 4K. It's looking promising for the mass market. Will the public get on board uh, with yet another resolution upgrade? We've discussed it at length this year so far, and uh, you know we'll still be discussing it for the rest of the year as uh, more and more manufacturers come into the market. And hopefully we'll get some content coming along soon as well. So let's move on from 4K TVs. Let's go to the cinema quickly. Um, all three of us have seen the new Star Trek Into Darkness movie. It's uh, one that we've been waiting on uh, most of this year. And um, I'll go first. I think it's a 9 out of 10. I thought it was a great popcorn f- film. And yes, there are controversies, but who cares? It's it's a blockbuster. It's fun. It's entertaining. And uh, the effects were astounding. I'll go along with that, Phil. Yeah, I think it, it delivered in every respect that I was, I was expecting it to. It doesn't. It has some issues. Particularly, I think if you're a massive Star Trek fan, um, you, you might take umbrage at certain plot points. Um, but at the same time, they also play with your expectations quite a bit within the film. If you're familiar with the Star Trek universe, but I think for most people, particularly people that just come into it ready to be fresh or only having seen the previous reboot movie in 2009, um, you know, yeah, it's, it's a great, entertaining, well-made film. Um, Good cast, funny, exciting, fantastic effects, as you say. But also, really glad to see J.J. Abrams was was happy to use real sets a lot of the time, either actual sets or locations, as well as um, using CG and, and green screen to a degree. So he wasn't relying just on, on, on green screen. And I think that's given me an enormous amount of hope when he gets around to making Star Wars 7 that he, you know, he, he's prepared to use every trick in the book to deliver an entertaining film. So, uh, you know, locations sh- shoot, um, real sets that the actors can interact with, makeup, and, and not just rely on CGI all the time. Uh, and that's one of the things that I came away with from having watched Star Trek Into Darkness was that that uh, he, he did use um, a lot of real sets and real locations and makeup effects rather than just heavily relying on CGI. But the CGI was actually superb as well. I mean, it really was a spectacular film. Thoroughly enjoyed it. Yeah, I, I, I don't find much to disagree with there. I, I'd probably chalk it down down a, a point to a, to a solid eight, eight and a half out of ten. Um, I mean, my I suppose my only umbrage is, you know, it would have been nice to, to have perhaps broken a little bit more new ground than they did, but I can, of course, fully understand why they didn't. And on a strictly personal level, we've discussed this uh, actually whilst the recorder hasn't been running before. I rate Benedict Cumberbatch very, very highly, but I do think he looks like a hyper-intelligent potato. <laughs> and that does, uh, on occasions, I'm just looking at him thinking, really um but no he he, he 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 no don't get me wrong he acts superbly it's not his problem that he looks a bit like a king edward and that is a bit of an odd one but there there you go i mean as i say as a summer blockbuster you really couldn't <laughs> ask for much more so you know i i thoroughly enjoyed it and um you know it, it, if i was concerned about aspects of uh, that being a bit far-fetched i i think uh steve and i we, we've got fast and the furious six booked in at some point as well Ooh, for, yes, for yes. maximum idiocy so uh, yes it's, it's all good <laughs> in years to come people will look back and realize that uh, fast five and fast and furious six so uh, are going to be masterpieces in the cinematic genre, I think. They're going to be like war and peace of, of movies. It's, it's, the new, it's the new Brat Pack. 
Well, it's, it's also it's a series that got better as it went along, which is unusual. Normally, yes, it's, it's the reverse, isn't it? Is that every film has got better than the one before, and and, and you know, I, I think Fast Five was a masterpiece. Bringing the Rock in was a stroke of genius, frankly. Well, it, it does and, help. I mean, it must have said Steve that get, making a series that gets better over time isn't so hard when you start from a relatively <laughs> low base point. You know, well, it, it's, also, it's quite funny because uh, in the third film, which which didn't actually involve any of the stars from the first two. Uh, so, so not only does the series get better as it goes along, but because uh, a popular character in the third film dies, they they have this convoluted timeline where the fifth and sixth films take place before the third film. Um, and so you're, uh, uh, real fans of the series start, you know, start working out. <laughs> I've heard rumours that uh, the end of the sixth film has got an amazing ending and then uh, the seventh film might be after the third film. So, yeah, it's a masterpiece, and, and I recommend it strongly to anyone. How the, uh, how the hang did we get from a classic Star Trek to Fast and Furious? That just, summer, uh, summer blockbuster. It just doesn't make sense to me. Anyway, um, so just wrapping up on Star Trek, uh, I think definitely Star Wars is in good hands with JJ. Um, there's a lot of comments on there saying, well, you know, they, they relied too heavily on what's happened in the past. They should have gone off and done something different but I guess for me at the same time um, I think they had to get that out of the system if you know what I mean uh, I think they had to they had to do this storyline just so they can kick on with the third film and and really have it as the five-year mission yeah that that seems to be what they're aiming for I, I guess my only complaint would be there's a lot of emotional payoff that maybe hasn't really been earned yet um, because we're in the second film into this into this new series, um, and perhaps maybe some of it would have played better in a third or fourth movie. But um, because if you compare it to say Star Trek one and two uh, from the first, you know, with the old crew, obviously those movies were after uh, three seasons of the original series plus seven seasons. You know, they had, you had the new generation. They've been going for a long time, so there was more emotional investment in the characters at that point. Whereas we kind of are reinvesting in these characters, even though we know them and they're familiar. Um, they are essentially in a new timeline now and the different actors and therefore it takes time again to, to to invest in these characters and perhaps they they were looking for a bit too much payoff too soon if they are um, going to be you know going to do this properly really we now need to have a good five or six year gap and um, get Chris Pine on a on a really thoroughly sort of calorific diet to get him up to <laughs> the full sort of corseted Shatner dimensions that with a wig. The, yeah, the, the, the later films sort of need. I think yeah, you know, yeah. That, that's important. I, I I do agree with you though, Steve. I, I think you hit on an, an important point there. There were some moments in the movie where they were going for the emotional payoff, and it just it doesn't really fit with with these new characters. Although we know that who they are. Yeah, I, I would agree with you. Maybe third or fourth film, that would have had more resonance. But at the same time, it was still enjoyable. And and it's the first real sort of summer blockbuster movie that I've enjoyed for quite some time, to be honest. If you had time to think about it, some of this stuff just doesn't really make much sense. But then again, <laughs> it is a summer blockbuster. It's a popcorn movie, and I thoroughly enjoyed it because of that. It must be said, this summer's looking pretty good. I mean, we've already had Star Trek. Uh, we've agreed to disagree about Fast and the Furious Six, but for me, and it seems Steve, it's it's you know that that's a that's an ex, a nice extra edition. Then right at the end of the summer, obviously, um, there's Rush as well, the uh, biopic of the it's a 1976 Formula One season with James Hunt and Nicky Lauda. It's been done by Ron Howard. I don't know if you've seen any of the trailers for that. I saw the it trailer. Lo- yeah, it looks the nuts. Yeah, I look and really I looking forward to that. <laughs> genuinely looking forward to that. It looks and it, it looks a little bit more cerebral than. Um, two films we'll be discussing but still 
shot with a, a real eye for eye for the, the the era it's supposed to be in so i'm yes although it's strange my wife has an unlimited cinema pass and even with that i still can't persuade her to come with me for that one but um, <laughs> I'm, I'm sure i'm sure i'll find someone I'm, I'm looking forward to man of steel which is opening on the 14th of june um the trailers certainly have, have sold that to me very well and i just saw the trailer uh, a couple days ago for alfonso Cuaron's gravity which doesn't come out until i think september or october but um it's his first film since men children of men which was in 2006 i think so it's his first film in seven years but it looks awesome as well um my, actually- my only thing with that is that it's it's bullock and clooney only Yes. That's that's and 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 it's. But I trust Alfonso Cuarón. I'm sure he'll okay. do something incredible with it. Okay. Well, I have seen I have seen the the trailer which was released last week when we're recording this. It was released last week, and yes, I hadn't known anything about this. Saw the trailer, and it's definitely piqued my interest. I think it will be interesting. Anyway, let's wrap up on the movies because uh, we've got lots to talk about this month, and uh, Ed's been uh, on a plane again. And uh, you went to Germany this time, Ed. So tell us, where did you go? What did you see? And was it worthwhile? Yes, I spent uh, two days at the high-end show in uh, Munich. And it's fair to say that the two days is not an indulgence. You need at least two days. And I could have done with more time to get round it. Um, Trying to get a sense of scale based on anything that happens in the UK. Essentially, it's. I suppose the nearest comparison would be it has two open atriums, uh, each of which is at least equivalent in size to the gadget show. And then on the upper deck is sufficient actual individual rooms to probably put in two Bristol's worth. So it, it's a it's a big undertaking. It's now probably the largest, if you like, conventional audio show in the world it, it it video takes uh, very much a back seat i mean panasonic turned up i think because they sort of felt obliged to but otherwise it was really about um stereo and multi-channel audio products and yeah there were there were loads of them i mean in terms of uh sort of items that, that have some bearing on reality uh arcam uh decided to choose a show which we normally think of stereo to release um uh, an all-new av receiver which will be out uh, later on in the year uh it if you like is and i'm, I'm ashamed to say that the, the model number escapes me at the moment i think it is the uh, avr 700 but it um it effectively takes the the basic the the, the basic platform of uh, of previous arcam av receivers looks at all the stuff that they arcam considers considered to be successful and then um essentially then builds on all the bits where they 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 needed to improve um and they're very very bullish about it they also uh, have obviously been read my review on um, the rblink bluetooth receiver i did recently where i asked where the airplay unit is um the airplay unit is inbound as well so there is a um a complete little DAC which will just communicate with your eye device and, and send that that signal to a hi-fi system which was was pretty cool um and then after that, think of a product, it was there. We had uh, a turntable that weighed a quarter of a ton, you know, obviously for logical purposes. <laughs> and um, the good news is that uh, even if uh, OLED does become a commercial reality, Plasma still has a future because there's a man in Germany who uses it for tweeters. And I'm, no, I'm not making that up. There is a, a company called Lancia Audio and um, the speakers use a ball of ionized gas to function as a tweeter. Um, and that looks at least as crazy as you might imagine. Basically, the speaker looks as you might imagine a speaker, except where the tweeter would be, there's literally this angry, glowing sort of hole. Um, and yeah, it was it was 
properly insane and the good news is that um there is a gentleman now bringing them into the uk if you uh, feel that your life isn't complete without a small ball of gas uh in your loudspeakers they they will be making making their appearance in the uk as well and as i say literally everything in between you had the major so, speaker sorry manual. ed can i ask a question sorry. yeah did they sound any good <laughs> they do it, it ultimately the, the the science is sound um it, it you know it's a material with no, no pun intended no in, with, with no, well with no inertia so it, it does do extraordinary things um and the good news is that it has got a lot safer um the early <laughs> prototypes as i understand it needed you needed to have an ozone scrubber in the same room to prevent you well dying um and they've they've, they've got all of those problems solved now so that it, it's much much safer as well and let's face it in terms of you know pointless man gesturing it's like yeah well i've got diamond tweeters oh, i've got beryllium tweeters yeah well i've got one made out of a ball of gas so i mean that's pretty cool pricing is it insane uh, price? if one has to ask one probably can't afford it i, I believe <laughs> i believe that it's start the little one starts from a whisker over 10 and it goes up a long way from there but you know let's face it this, this if you like this is the, the same parallels we see in the screens this is early adoption um, and, you know, it's being done on a very small scale by a German speaker company. I'm sure that if one of the major manufacturers wants to get behind it, we could see the price drop and people having ionised balls of gas in, 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 their, in their lounges in the not too distant future. I suppose the, one, one of the side effects is that you could die. So, you know, well, you know, let, let, what happened to health and safety? <laughs> <laughs> well, as I say, they, they do seem to... They, uh, in the in the demonstration room, there was no sign of an ozone scrubber, and I'm pretty sure that they'd have had to have one if it was still dangerous. So yeah, you know, I I, I feel well. I'm you know I'm here. I didn't die, so you know I don't know what would happen if I'd spent the entire weekend in there. But you know, I, I I was I was quite impressed with it. I mean, on a more sort of prosaic level, at the other end of speaker uh, speaker pricing, uh, Kef unveiled a complete new version of the sort of semi legendary egg. Um, to the extent where, if I'm honest, it doesn't look quite as egg-shaped as it once did, but um, performance definitely looked impressive. And then, uh, essentially, in terms of things that I can try and get into review over the next 12 months, I was spoiled for choice. We had uh, Tannoy releasing the Precision series, which looks fantastic. Uh, Quadral, to my mind, one of the most underestimated brands on sale in the UK, Um complete new range of budget loudspeakers and they also brought a complete surround system of the flagship Aurum speakers which was it, a demonstration of that in a, in one of the one of the little sort of porter cabins downstairs it was it was shock and awe in a good way um and the only thing that sort of out out sort of it sort of performed it was uh Macintosh the uh high-end American manufacturer brought along a million dollar 7.1 system which by and large, was pretty. That 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 had a certain something to it as well. Although um, I've, I'll I'll put a photo up in in the show report. The uh, electronics required to support it. it effect, effectively, you're talking seven one thousand watt monoblocks, each one weighing about fifty five kilos. So um, rack wise, it's going to be a bit of a challenge. But it, it did look quite spectacular. You need like a, a second house to store all the equipment. If you can afford a million dollars for yeah, a yeah, you're system, not you, you're not going to worry about trivialities like that, are you? So, so it was fine. Um, but I mean, the, the most amazing thing is uh, it's not a particularly cheap show to exhibit at. And actually, it's not. It, it's, whilst I wouldn't regard it as expensive to visit, it's still not a bargain. Absolutely packed. Um, it just, you know, the, tra the trade day was reasonably busy on the Thursday, but by the Friday, 
absolutely rammed everywhere was was absolutely full of people and um also you know not meaning to demean some of the uh, uk show going audience uh, uh, uh quite a spread of people some of whom were younger than me which was quite exciting and some of whom were a different gender to me which is even more exciting so uh, i don't know what the germans are doing but they're, they're doing something and getting people to shows that, that at the moment just doesn't seem to be happening in the uk if you have any sort of interest in these sort of things it is well worth a visit it's interesting you said that ed because i know we've discussed this previously after the bristol show there is a dearth of like shows in the UK, isn't there? I mean, there's, I mean, there's, mm. a, there's the Bristol show. Uh, there's that sort of hi-fi show that you you went to. Um, I yes. what it's called now. The Whit was the what? it's the I, I can't remember what they're calling it. These it's the one at Whittlebury Hall. Yes, that's the one at Whittlebury Hall. That's it. There's that one. Um, I guess it's the gadget show. If you want to class that as a show, though it's it covers a very wide product range, doesn't it, in terms of gadgets. Um, but that, that's about it. I mean, right. There isn't a, a single big trade show anymore now that um, the CDA show is not happening. Manchester's gone for Burton. So, so it's it's strange that in the UK that there's a real dearth of it. But in Germany, you've got Munich, and then later in September, we've got IFA. You've got some massive shows over there. Well, part of the reason for it is that both Munich and IFA are, are pulling people in internationally. They uh, CES and Munich are essentially for for especially for two-channel audio and to an extent multi-channel audio they are the destination shows where we will get on planes and we will go and get together in one place at one time and half of the reason why the germans have got these two shows is that they have in in ifa um they have a ven- they have venues uh, ideal for you know a massive quantity of open open venues for open booths and the moc in munich is quite unlike any other venue i know of anywhere on earth it has these big atriums on the ground floor for sort of open exhibitors and then the upper deck is full of you know sealed individual rooms uh and it, it there there isn't anything like it in the uk where you could even contemplate trying to sort of compete with it is that is that next to the football stadium it's not a million miles away from it Um, i've been there it's i have been there that one of the panasonic conventions was held uh, in that location yeah so i have been there and i have seen the size of it yeah and um yeah essentially this i just don't believe there's a parallel in the uk Uh, and then you've got the added problem that where fundamentally it then has to have enough clout to bring people in internationally and with the best will in the world i'm not 100 percent sure that we, we 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 can do that especially whilst these other shows continue in the background no no come on ed bristol's got an international airport <laughs> I, I, well i'll take your word for that i'm afraid i've well, never seen they, they they claim it's an international airport but uh you know it does do european flights but i'm not <laughs> sure whether the u.s is well covered so yeah i mean that that's the problem um but equally, by the same token, uh, you know, if you plan a little bit in a, a little bit in advance, it if you live uh, anywhere near one of the larger UK airports, it probably won't end up costing you a vast amount more to spend forty eight hours at the Munich show than it would to say decide to use public transport to go from the north of England to Bristol, which is a yeah. sad indictment of, uh, of of rail travel as is. But um, you know, it, it, if you were interested in going I'd, I'd wholeheartedly recommend it plan a bit in advance and it needn't cost you a, a, an outrageous sum of money so Ed, were there any um obvious trends that you saw this year um the big one i suppose uh is that anyone that likes wood veneer on loudspeakers uh, i'd suggest 
probably getting your purchase in reasonably quickly because I, I sense uh, lots of different price points from the very cheapest to all the way up to serious money that um, we are going to be looking at a good few years of lacquers, be they black, white or or specify your colour. Um, big releases with the noble exception of Tannoy, almost everything out there is being done as, as, as painted finishes in, in, and most of them look very smart but um, you know a lot of people to an extent myself included I, I, I like a bit of veneering on a loudspeaker and um, yeah there wasn't wasn't a huge amount of that to see as it stands so um, it does seem to be if you like that's the big sort of decor move otherwise as you know two-channel audio in particular and multi-channel audio sort of following behind it doesn't doesn't jump into anything too quickly um I suppose the uh, the one that's sort of creeping in is the, the number of receivers able to at least offer a 4K bypass, um, if not necessarily 4K processing. Um, that seems to be dropping further and further down in pricing terms, which is good news, I suppose, if you're looking for something to partner your shiny new £4,000. Yeah, there's, there's, I mean, almost all, all the receivers I've seen I've reviewed in the last six months have had 4K pass-through, except, bizarrely, uh, Onkyo, who managed to score an enormous own goal by having 4K upscaling, but it couldn't pass through a 4K signal, which seems spectacularly short-sighted. <laughs> That's <laughs> um, very peculiar. Almost willful. <laughs> uh, but otherwise, e- even some of the quite cheap Denons uh, will pass through 4K. Um, so, yeah, it's becoming... I mean, so that's clearly the, the, the industry positioning itself for our inevitable 4K future, I guess. Okay, so that was the, the Munich High End Show. Uh, lucky Ed... Uh, going over to Germany for that one. So um, next on the list for us to discuss is uh, a review which has not left uh, the hottest review list since it went up. It's had well over 20,000 hits. And of course, it's uh, Panasonic's flagship TV for this year, the ZT65. We've been discussing this again since uh, CES, Steve. Finally got it in for review, and it's lived up to the hype. Yeah, I mean, I think it would be fair to say there was a reasonable amount of expectation when it came to this television. I mean, we, we've been, not, not just us personally, but clearly you know, most people, particularly enthusiasts, have been crying out for an enthusiast TV since the demise of the Kuro back in 2008, 2009. So, um, and nothing's come along. I mean, Panasonic have, have sort of taken over the mantle from Pioneer, um, they've been releasing progressively better and better plasmas, um, but they are clearly uh, consumer products aimed at the mass market. Uh, this year, they, they surprised us all by announcing that uh, they would be doing the ZT, which is called the ZT65 in the UK, although it's ZT60 in the US and the rest of Europe, rather confusingly. And that would sit above the normal flagship VT range. It's only one screen size, uh, 60 inches. There is a 65 inch in the States, but in Europe, at least, it's just 60 inches. Uh, and it will be in limited supply. And, and from what I've read on the forums and feedback, I've got people that, you know, those people have already been ordering it. And, and whilst those orders will be filled, uh, you know, if you put an order in now, you could have a long wait ahead of you. I'm not quite sure how long, but definitely that it's limited supply. The reason it's limited supply is because the panel, the, the way the panel's made, the, the bonding process that they use uh, is uh, quite difficult. Um, the, the difference between uh, the ZT and the VT, for example, is that the glass at the front of the panel is actually bonded to the panel itself. There is no layer of air between the two. And the idea behind that is it reduces light reflections and therefore, you know, improves perceived light levels. And um, 
that's difficult to make. And that's the reason why there's only two screen sizes, uh, and in fact, only one screen size in Europe, and also why there's limited supply. Um, now, that, obviously, that, that's, that can be a good thing because it makes it more desirable because it's difficult to get hold of. And certainly, they've gone out of their way to emphasize this is a, uh, a limited edition enthusiast product. So if you buy a ZT, uh, you get uh, like a, a membership card and a unique serial number and a booklet. Um, and, uh, you know, there's, there's, there are features on, on the TV that are unique to the ZT. So they are trying to make it, uh, position it as, as an enthusiast product. It's retailing for 399 uh, 3999 sorry mm-hmm. um, or 4, 4k to, to you and I about the pound um, which is interesting price point because we've been, been discussing uh, 4k for 4k at the beginning of this podcast uh, and yes a lot of expectation uh, we finally got it in in for review uh, and uh, it delivered it delivered in every respect it it, it really is a, a spectacularly good television I mean it in my experience it's the best TV I've reviewed. Um, it's the best TV I've seen. Uh, I, you know, I've got a Kuro, and it is a great television, but it's getting a little long in the tooth now. You know, four years is a long time in the AV world, particularly in the video side of it, let's say the audio side, as Ed's just pointed out. But um, in the video side, things change very quickly. I mean, we're already moving into a 4K world now. Um, four years is a long time. The Pioneer Kuro was a was a, a reference-class television four years ago, but gradually its dominance has been whittled away by progressive uh, Panasonic models to be honest starting with last year's vt50 which which got a reference status badge this year the 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 vt65 has also got a reference status badge the zt it just delivers uh one of the most beautiful pictures i've ever seen yeah it's got incredibly deep blacks um that are a shade better and we really are splitting hairs here i mean it's better than the kuro and and the VT65, but we're talking about black levels that are so low that we're you know we're we're really hitting the limits of what the meters can actually measure. I mean, when you're trying to measure the absence of light, inherently there's, there's that's going to be difficult because you know you're measuring something that isn't there. Um, so you know things like different meters, different conditions, different panels can probably make it you know affect the measurements. So people shouldn't get too uh, worked up about the actual measurements. What I can tell you is that the perceived black levels are absolutely superb. And it's also very bright, not as bright as um, some of the models I've seen. Uh, certainly the Samsung um, F8500, it was brighter. Uh, also the, the the GT60 I reviewed was brighter, although that is a smaller panel. But given the black level measurements and, and the relatively bright image, which was certainly as bright as the Kuro, uh, it has an absolutely gigantic dynamic range, but both in terms of on-off contrast ratio and also the ANSI contrast ratio, which is also very good. Well, not very good, but the best we've measured. I mean, absolutely huge. So, you know, that that kind of dynamic range really gives the images uh, punch. I mean, yes, it's not going to be as bright as some of the other plasmas that you can get, certainly the Samsung, the new Samsung. It certainly won't be as bright as an LED LCD TV, but brightness isn't everything. People probably have their TV set, as we've mentioned in previous podcasts talking about picture perfect now the tv set too bright you know you don't need to that bright particularly not when you're watching um in the, in the evening uh and what's more important is ha- how wide that dynamic range is uh at a comfortable brightness for for, for for evening and nighttime viewing and in that sense the zt wipes the floor with anything else i've seen um it really was spectacular and there are some other features on it that are, that are new and, and unique to this this um this particular model um the obvious one being that it has what's called an ebu um certified mode so it's got the traditional thx mode and it's also got isf calibration control so you've got pro one and pro two 
Um, but it has this extra extra picture mode, um, which is um, based upon the European Broadcasting Union's um, standards. I, I, I think their standards are basically designed for a um, broadcast monitor. Judging by the, the way it behaves, it very much behaves that way in terms of it has a, a set level of brightness. Because obviously when you're, you're talking about broadcast monitors and monitors used in um, some production suites, you know, again, they're dark and you don't need them to be particularly bright. You need them to be accurate and, and consistent. And and that's what I think this standard is aiming at. So in terms of its brightness, it, it, it is significantly less bright than um, in, in an on-off on -off contrast ratio terms less bright than, say, the, the um, pro modes. But uh, in terms of the ANSI contrast ratios, it, it matches them exactly. Um, and that's a nice little feature. Um, as I said, there's, there's other little features that make it sort of uh, un uh, that are unique to uh, the ZT to make it a little bit special because you're buying something that, you know, is a limited edition enthusiast product. But, uh, you know, in, in terms of performance, um, everyone asked the same question to me after the review went up, which is, is it better than the Kuro? Yes, it's the bottom line. I think it's a better TV than the Kuro for so many reasons. I mean, you know, really the, the dominance of the Kuro has been moved for a long time um, because, you know, the Kuro doesn't have uh, very good calibration. I mean, yes, you can calibrate the grayscale perfectly, but everyone knows that the CMS on the Kuro was no good. Um, you, you've got no no smart TV platform, no Freeview HD tuner, no FreeSat tuner, no dual tuners, no HDD recording capability, no smart platform, no remote app, uh, no 3D. Uh, you know, the list goes on and on and on. It's a four-year-old TV and we have moved on so much in the last four years, whereas the ZT has all of that. You know, it, it is that the only thing it doesn't have, surprisingly, compared to the the, the VT, which is the model below, is it doesn't have a built-in camera, but I don't think that's really a big deal. It's, you know, it's got every other feature you could possibly imagine in a television. You know, it's the current state of the art. Um, we've talked a lot about uh, this perhaps being that we're heading towards the end of Plasma's life cycle. Um, if that's to be the case, then um, then at least it's, it's a hell of a swan song. It really is uh, a great TV. Uh, I, I didn't want to give it back. I mean, I suppose the, the interesting thing now is we get to watch this uh, it happens with a, a, a number of technologies and, and it's happened in a number of different periods where we get to watch a highly evolved last the line of one piece of technology going up against comparatively early iterations of, of its notional replacement and working out when during this procedure that the that the the new technology is is not only better when used in, in its comfort zone, but used across the board. So, I mean, this is where the 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 the, the interest in 4K delivery systems comes along to 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 see whether whether the equivalently priced Sony is able to compete in its own comfort zone, and then what happens when you decide to just watch EastEnders on a on a on a standard weekday evening on 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 the pair of them. Yes, it's a, it's a good point you make there, Ed. And um, I, I think a question we'll, we'll probably get asked quite a lot as, as this year progresses is, you know, I'm thinking of buying a new TV. Do, do I buy, a, you know, do I buy something like ZT or VT? Uh, or do I wait for OLED or do I wait for 4K? Um, and my answer, thinking about it, would be, well, OLED, I don't know about because clearly Phil and I were at <laughs> LG's uh, OLED launch last May. And that product still hasn't really made it to the market, um, because from what we understand, that there there have been issues with production. Uh, Samsung have gone very quiet on the OLED front. Obviously, Sony and Panasonic have kind of leapfrogged the whole 1080p thing and now talking about doing 4K OLED next year. 
So OLED uh, is sort of uh, absent without leave at the moment, which which has given, uh, I think, Plasma a new lease of life because it's still the best picture quality you're going to get in the marketplace right now um, at 1080p. So if you're thinking of buying a TV, you know, I would seriously consider going for a VT or a ZT if you can afford a ZT um, and, and, and you want a 16 screen size because I think they're going to get the best picture quality. 4K TVs, uh, certainly, obviously, they'll have the additional resolution. There's the issue of what you're going to watch on them in terms of actual <laughs> native 4K content. But also, these are LED LCD TVs, so they may have greater resolution, but they're still going to have all the inherent problems that that particular technology's got. So, you know, you're looking at backlight uniformity, uh, you know, motion handling, all the things that the LCD isn't that good at, um, and particularly when you, you you compound the problems by adding in edge-lit LEDs and this sort of stuff. And the, the, the 4K panels that I've seen, and I've seen a number of them, um, not just from LG, but also Toshiba and Sony, you know, there, there are still all those inherent issues that come with an LCD TV. Uh, the blacks aren't as good as a plasma. The uh, you know, the pat light uniformity is not as good. Motion handling isn't as good. So the question is, you know, if you're buying a TV right now, my advice will almost certainly be get a plasma because you're not going to be watching any 4K content anytime soon. Um, but you're going to be watching an awful lot of 1080p content, and that's going to look absolutely spectacular on uh, on on the ZT or, or the VT. Fair enough. I'll, I'll, I'll take that I'll take that under advisement, sir. <laughs> well, well, I mean, obvi Just obviously, don't hold the, it against me. <laughs> obviously, the the big issue um, with the ZT, Steve, is is the fact that it is so much more expensive than the VT, um, and really, there's not a, a a great deal of difference in terms of performance between the two. And this is being discussed to death on the forums at the minute, uh, in the plasma forums. Um, so really what we're looking at here is the VT65 is an outstanding TV. We've given it a reference award. The ZT is just that little bit better, but it's only available in one screen size. So your choice there is is uh, limited, but in terms of performance, they're both really quite close to each other. Yeah, I mean, like I said earlier, I mean, we're talking fractions here, uh, tiny fractions of difference in terms of performance. And and I suspect that, uh, you know, in, in an average room in an evening with a bit of bias lighting on, it's going to be difficult to even tell them apart because, you know, you know we're, we're talking such tiny measurements. Um, and as you say, Phil, you know, there's only one screen size, 60 inch for the ZT, if you if you look at the VT lineup, there's 50, 55 and 65. And you can get a 65 inch uh, um VT65 for, I think it's 3,300 at the moment, roughly. So the difference is about 700 quid, and it's a smaller screen size on the ZT. So you, the, the argument then comes, is, is it worth the additional money? And a lot, that's really going to come down to the individual, isn't it? Uh, yeah, there are people that will think, well, I want the best. I don't care. I want the best, so I'm going to pay the four grand. The people that think, well, I want a bigger screen size. And interestingly, um, I've just currently got the ZT and the VT65, uh, 65 inch VT65 together, uh, so I'll be able to actually do a direct comparison um, between the two. I only arrived this afternoon, so I haven't had a chance to set them both up yet. But um, uh, the difference in screen size, that extra five inches, makes a huge difference. It is a lot bigger. Um, so that that's a, that's a factor to consider if you want a, a, a very large screen size, and 65 inches is the one you want to go for. Then you only have the choice of the, of the VT65. So. Um, yeah, I guess Panasonic have been clever in the sense that they, <laughs> you've got 55, 60 uh, in the VT and then 65 in the, sorry, 
uh, you've got 55 in the VT, uh, 60 in the ZT, and then 65 in the VT, and they haven't overlapped. In fact, the only area where they actually do overlap is uh, between the GT and the, and the VT, where there's both a 50-inch version of, of both TV. Uh, and then there's only a 42-inch GT. So it, it's, yeah, it's a valid point, Phil. Um, I, I think it will almost certainly come down to the individual and, wh- and what they want. And who said five inches wasn't important? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway... Uh, that is the ZT65. Uh, we give it a reference award. The review is up on the site, as well as uh, reviews of the 50-inch and the 55-inch uh, VT65s. And as Steve said, he's got the 65-inch VT65 in for review at the minute, uh, sitting next to a ZT. So look out for that review and the comparisons between the two, uh, which should be hopefully on the site, if not on the exact day that this is published. It will be a couple of days after this podcast, hopefully. Am I right there, Steve? That that sounds about right. Uh, So that kind of wraps up our podcast for this month. And we are from July making some uh, changes to the podcast. So the June Movies podcast will not be around next month uh, due to uh, staff holidays and so on. The last home cinema podcast will be June 21st. And from the beginning of July, we are swapping to weekly podcasts. So every Wednesday, you will get an AV Forums podcast where we will mix up the movies home cinema and tech news reviews product launches all the big stories that are happening if they're happening that week we will be discussing them in the podcast and we're looking for you to get more involved as well if you have any questions queries or comments then please email us at podcast at avforums.com i'm sure going into the second half of the year guys uh, there's lots of interesting products coming along and you know 2013 is really proven to be a, a really interesting year when it comes to tech home cinema and movies yeah it's gonna i mean i've got to say i'm getting quite excited about some of the stuff that um i've heard rumored to be coming in the second half of the year i think uh you know as we talked about at the beginning of this podcast lots of changes happening new products coming along 4k being a good example uh, and uh, i think uh, video as as pointed out is probably a bit more dynamic than audio sometimes but certainly on the video side uh, it's, we're entering a, a i think a really exciting phase um, if you're an av enthusiast right now we, we could be reaching a point where you're going to be seeing um, technology like oled which is going to offer uh, unbelievable picture quality and the possibility of a, of a delivery format that could actually give you uh, an experience that is the same as the cinema. So, I mean, you know, for those of us that are into home cinema, it, that, that's the holy grail, isn't it, to actually genuinely replicate the cinema experience at home? Can't argue with that. I mean, yes, you're absolutely right. Audio, um, I'm I'm afraid I'm not going to promise anyone that we're going to reinvent the wheel uh, in the second half of this year. But there is there's some interesting stuff out there. There's um, an, a, a move to make uh, some, of, some of the products I'm seeing far more accessible and far more usable day to day. They do far more prosaic. Well, I say more prosaic. They, they, they are far, far more able to interact with, with devices that are being used by more normal members of the general public. Um, and the other uh, area, which is slightly more esoteric, I guess, is that um, there are any number of seriously high end earphones due uh, now, whether we deal with some, all, or none of them, uh, I'll make sure that we can do run some news stories on them. And if the interest is there, um, Sennheiser have released their statement earphone. Uh, there's rumblings that Sure are in the process of doing something spectacular. And um, I've got some data here which will 
hopefully try and include in my show report from a Japanese manufacturer, um, a pair of earphones, yours for a thousand pounds. So uh, we'll go see how that all that stacks up. And um, yeah, there, there, there's going to be pl- plenty to uh, plenty to see and, and test. And just as a teaser as well, um, yes, the second half of the year is going to be very important. And because things are starting to ramp up again in the whole technology, home cinema and movie world, there are some big changes coming to AV forums starting in July, if all goes to plan. We won't say any more than that, but it will be uh, very editorially heavy. And hopefully it's going to uh, have all the latest news, all the latest reviews, all the latest videos right at your fingertips. So stay tuned for more news on that. Um, We might even discuss that in next month's Home Cinema Podcast. Who knows? So, like I said, that is all we have time for this month. Thank you very much for listening. And my thanks to Steve Weathers. Cheers, guys. And my thanks to Ed Selly. Cheers, all. And this is Phil Hinton saying thanks for listening. And we'll catch you again on the final Home Cinema Podcast on the 21st of June. Until then, take care.